Okay, so we've set up a little bit of secular history. We've set it up just a little broad brushstrokes of redemptive history to get us now to where I want to get into the Bible and look at seven images, all familiar images, but with, a, with an eye towards uh, missional living and the missional shape and vocation of the New Covenant community. So first image of the, of the biblical theological missional outlook is obviously where do you start? The Great Commission. Rightly so, a familiar passage. So flip over to Matthew 28. I'm going to do a lot of flipping this session. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I'm going to, just for the sake of uh, picking up some illusions here, and, and it's not like we're doing guesswork here. These are the exact words used in the, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament. I'm going to transliterate I'm, or transliterate it here. I'm going to mention some Greek words, and I just want you to hear them so that we can pick up what, what Matthew's doing with alluding to other big, famous verses in the Old Testament that we uh, sometimes miss, and sometimes our reference Bibles don't pick up either. So Matthew 28. <clears throat> then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority, the word here is exousia, exousia, out of the original stuff. All authority, exousia, has been given, edothe, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, pontata ethne, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember... I am with you always to the ends of the age. Jesus has been given all authority. Here Jesus is echoing the all-important verses in Daniel 7. Let me read those. You don't have to turn there. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Really important passages for understanding Jesus and his mission. What is, the, is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself? Son of man. Where does that come from? If you're a Jew, you hear son of man, you're thinking Daniel. That verse says this. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds. And let me just put a footnote here. It's another discussion. We're not going to go here in Q&A. But note that in Daniel, the son of man coming with the clouds is an ascension from earth to heaven. Just leave that with you. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given authority. Edothe exousia. Sound familiar, right? To rule and glory in a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and languages, pontata ethne, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Same word. It's an everlasting authority, exousia, that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Clear allusions in the Great Commission to Daniel 7, but also to Psalm 2 that we've seen several times, famous enthronement psalm of the Davidic king. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So Jesus is the Danielic son of man who's been given all authority. He's the king. He's the son of God. And it's from this basis that he gives the commission. I've been given all authority, therefore, for this reason, 
the church is commissioned to make disciples, baptize, and teach. Uh, Picking up on this logic of the text, John Dixon, in his really good book on the something like the best-kept secret of Christian mission, he writes of the mission equation. And he says, the mission equation is, if there is one Lord to whom all people belong and owe their allegiance, the people of that Lord must promote this reality everywhere. And this is what we read, right? Jesus is the king. In the Davidic king, we see pointed forward to the king of not merely Israel, but the nations. Jesus is that Lord. He is the Lord of lords. Caesar is not. He has all authority. If that's the case, if there's one Lord and all people belong to this Lord, he has authority over all people. If that's the case, then the people of that Lord must promote this reality everywhere. So missions can be seen as the summons of the lordship of the Davidic king which is another way of saying the summons of the lordship of Christ, right? That's what Christ means, the anointed one, the Davidic king. So in part of our mission in evangelism, we're making people aware of their Lord. And we're warning them, we're appealing to them. This is, this is what the book of Acts is all about, right? Declaring the lordship of Christ. We're making people aware of the fact that one day they will bow their knee. And their tongue and their mouth will confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and we're summoning them to bow to his lordship now through faith and repentance. We're helping them realize and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we, we are ambassadors, right? That's what an ambassador is, one speaking for a higher authority, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're summoning, summoning them. We're, there, we're speaking for the king and we're summoning them to repent. In that book, uh, Dixon mentions some guys, these thugs that get on a, a bus, and there's three or four of them, and they're just wanting to cause trouble. In the back of the bus, there's this fellow, this black man sitting in the back, and he's just sitting down minding his business, and he's the only one on the bus. And uh, they start heckling him, you know, trying to get a reaction out of the guy, and he's just ignoring him, you know, sitting down. And they, they ramp it up a little bit, talking more trash, trying to get a reaction out of him, and he doesn't say a word. And so they just kind of leave it at that. They, they continue just to mouth at him, but he doesn't respond, so they're just having fun with it. And the bus stops, and he stands up. And when he stands up, he is much bigger than they had anticipated from him just sitting down kind of slouched over. And they realize, whoa, this is a big man. And he walks by, and he hands him a business card, and he walks out of the bus. Doesn't, doesn't say a word. And the, the, the card says, Joe Lewis, comma, professional boxer. So these young thugs just tried to pick a fight with Joe Lewis, the brown bomber, known to have knocked horses out with one punch. I don't know why he was punching horses, but apparently if he did, he'd knock them out in one. He was the heavyweight boxing champion from 1937 to 1949. This dude was a beast. They did not realize that they were in the presence of greatness. But think if we were Joe Lewis's friends. So you or I are sitting next to Big Joe, and for whatever reason, maybe we look, we look like we're kind of his size because he slouched over. What would we do when these guys start talking trash to Big Joe, the brown bomber? We would have to let them know. Of course, we would talk trash like, it was, like we would do anything because we've got Joe right here. Uh, excuse me, you know who this is? You want to keep talking mess? Well, this is what, the, this is what evangelism can be looked at. We, don't, we are making people aware of the fact that they are in the reality of greatness and, in fact, will submit to this greatness. 
They have to be informed. These young thugs would have had to be informed of what they were doing. They were getting themselves in a mess. They were in the presence of greatness and didn't know it. And his greatness would demand explanation. Every one of our friends, every one of our neighbors, every one of our family members lives and breathes in the presence of the greatest Lord who makes Joe Lewis look like you know, a limbless grasshopper. And we've got, to, we've got to stand up on the bus and promote this reality. He is the Lord. He has all authority. Therefore we go. And we summons people. There's yet another illusion, though, in, in the Great Commission to, surprise, surprise, the Abraham narrative, this time in Genesis 18. 18, Abraham is to become a great nation, a powerful nation, and all the nations, pontita ethne, same three words, same phrase, of the earth will be blessed through him. Christopher Wright says that the words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the so-called Great Commission, could be seen as a Christological mutation of the original Abrahamic commission. Go and be a blessing, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And I don't think this commission ends with the disciples. I think the church as a whole inherits this commission. And in many ways, the Great Commission is, is the command of the New Covenant. John Frame, Reformed theologian, writes, the Great Commission must be the focus of everything the church does. Indeed, it, <coughs> it must be the focus of the life of every believer. All the New Testament statements of the goal of the Christian life focus on redemption, on bringing unbelievers into the kingdom, so all the work of the church is missional. In the main verbs, you probably know, is make disciples. It's not just a verse for missionaries. The Great Commission is not just a verse for missionaries. The Great Commission is a verse for every Christian. Disciples make disciples. And it says make disciples, not converts. I'm not sure if this is an issue where you're at. It's probably an issue everywhere, but in, in my circles, it's quite an issue. It's, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention really values numbers and baptisms, and I just got the paper recently. I don't remember which aspect of the convention it was, so I won't say, but I got a paper that's a monthly paper, and in this issue, it had all the numbers, all the baptisms of all the churches in this state convention for everyone to see. And you've got to have a certain amount of numbers if you're going to go anywhere in the convention. So there's pressure just to get numbers, right? Pressure to get converts, to make converts, not make disciples. I was on a mission trip in New York um, 2005, I think, and we were there for about two weeks or so. It was me and a group of college students, and um, turns out it was more of a vacation, so uh, they wanted to go, you know, on the Tonight Show and all that, and I, I didn't. So I was off by myself, and uh, just on the subway, I wanted to go see some things. I wanted to, because I, I would use basketball as a means to share the gospel, so I wanted to go to Rucker Park in Harlem, and I wanted to go to a place in Queens that is famous for street ball, and just to strike up conversations, play some ball, strike up some conversations, talk about the gospel. Went to Rucker Park, did, did some stuff there, went over to Queens, and uh, I go to the courts I'm thinking of, and there's, uh, you know, it's, it's Queens, it's the hood, and there's all these khakis and white polos tucked in. And I'm thinking, okay, this isn't normal. Come up on it, and sure enough, there's a, a church group uh, from Texas. <laughs> doing a, a vacation Bible study for the kids there uh, at the park. And most of the kids, you know, they're not with their parents there. And so I, I, you know, I didn't get to do what I wanted to do there, so I'd strike up a conversation with one of the, one of the people from the church and tell them, yeah, I'm here, you know, on a mission trip trying to do some things. Yeah, we've, we've got, you know, I had so-and-so numbers, and, 
this many people saved and this many prayed the prayer. And, you know, I want to rejoice with that. I really do. I don't want to be the guy who's, you know, just not rejoicing when someone enters the kingdom. At the same time, I'm concerned with disciples, not converts. And so I asked him, yeah, that's great, man, but what, what's the plan after this? Because they're there for four or five days making converts, and they're leaving. And I said, so what's the plan? There's a lot of, obviously, very few white people in this, in this park. Um, so lots of other ethnicities, lots of other religions, I'd imagine. No parents, though. So getting these kids to pray this prayer, probably, I didn't see it, probably in manipulative ways. And I said, what's the plan in terms of, y'all connected with local churches here in Queens? That, you know, what's next? Oh, brother. We just want them to pray that prayer. We believe in what's saved, always saved, and we're doing our part. We can't do it all. So they're going back to Texas and probably a mega church and saying, we saw 99 kids receive Christ. Praise the Lord. We're doing missions. That's not the Great Commission. The commission, Great Commission is to make disciples. It's not build big building. It's not have immaculate services. It's not to entertain. It's not to replicate rock concerts. It's not to come up with programs that meet the religious needs of the congregation. It's to make disciples. The authors of the trellis and the vine write, thus the goal of Christian ministry is quite simple and in a sense measurable. We're making and nurturing genuine disciples of Christ. The church always tend towards, tends towards institutionalism, secularization. The focus shifts to preserving traditional programs and structures and the goal of discipleship is lost. The mandate of disciple making provides the touchstone for whether our church is engaging in Christ's mission. Are we making genuine disciples of Jesus Christ? Our goal is not to make church members or members of our institution, but genuine disciples of Jesus. Commanded to make disciples or commanded to teach what the Lord commanded or commanded to baptize. You know, I, I was struck and convicted recently by the amount of mentions of baptism in the preaching of Acts. I wonder how often do you preach and call for baptism? Uh, it's important in the book of Acts. It's important in the whole New Testament. And I love some of these conferences together for the gospel, to the gospel coalition. But, but Baptist brothers and sisters, be careful that in this we don't lose the importance of baptism. You know, hang on tight to the centrality of baptism in the New Testament. Okay, we can say a lot about that, but let's keep moving. Let's flip to Acts chapter 1. It's very unfortunate that Acts is separated from Luke. Uh, I understand why. It's convenient in some ways. But remember, Luke-Acts is a one-volume work. Luke-Acts are meant to be read together and preached together. Acts 1, 6 to 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the age. Verse 8 is programmatic for the rest of the book of Acts, and it's full of illusions. Again, we're not, we're not having to do guesswork here. It's full of clear allusions to the Old Testament, and in particular to Isaiah, as is the whole New Testament, right? You know, Dr. Dr. Hamilton tied in a lot. We heard a lot about the New Exodus, and he easily could have, but for whatever reason chose not to deal with Isaiah. 
But Isaiah is, this is why the father is called Isaiah the fifth gospel or the gospel according to the Old Testament. Isaiah is extremely important for understanding the New Testament. There are 590 references, explicit or otherwise, from 63 chapters of Isaiah found in 23 New Testament books. That's amazing. Listen again. 590 references, explicit or otherwise, from 63 chapters of Isaiah found in 23 New Testament books. And it's in particular... Isaiah 40 and following that are so significant, as you probably know. Isaiah's vision of a new exodus. Picking up, as we've seen, exodus is the great act of God, and as we've seen so so clearly in so many other ways that it just continues to pick up the theme. And God will act in the future as he's acted in the past. So Isaiah 40 and 55 are huge for, the, for Isaiah's vision of the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Jerusalem. And uh, the ministry of Jesus. I mean, think about Mark 1, Mark's prologue. Silence for 400 years, the beginning of the gospel. By the way, gospel comes from this section. Think about the roots of gospel that comes from Isaiah 40, verse 9, and 52, 7, 61. So there we have already with the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. So this new vision... This new exodus of Isaiah is programmatic for the Gospel of Mark, I would say, for the whole New Testament. And I want to notice how here in this this answer to the disciples from Jesus, I think he's actually answering the question. Sometimes people think he's doing other things. I think he's answering the question. And I want to show you the, the verses he's appealing to. Now notice the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 8, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. We tend to think of various things with the Holy Spirit. Jews would, have, Jews would have thought of one thing, new covenant. Maybe not use that language. Maybe they would have said new exodus, the new thing God's going to do. Notice Isaiah thirty-two fifteen. until the spirit from heaven is poured out on us. Then the desert will become an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest. New creation, in other words. So there's the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, my witnesses comes from Isaiah 43, verse 12. Again, Isaiah 40 and following is his vision of the new exodus. It says, I alone declared, saved and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also alluded to Isaiah 44, 8. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Acts 1.8 says to Judea, to Samaria, and recall the, the, the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. So this is significant. Samaria was basically considered Gentile, according to most Jews, half-breeds. And all the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth is from Isaiah 49.6. It says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nation to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49.6 is really important for Luke. It bookends both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And notice the Christ-centered nature of this commission. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They ask, are you going to do this? And then Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. 
It's a Christ-centered mission, the ministry of the servant who is Jesus and is also the people of Jesus. Luke uses this Isaiah 49.6 passage to refer to Jesus and to refer to the ministry of the church. The ministry of the servant goes on. In Acts 13, 46 to 49, we read that Paul and Barnabas boldly said, It was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. By the way, just notice the order. All who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the message of the Lord spread through the whole region. And then at the end, we have Acts 26.20. Paul preached to those in Damascus first, and then those in Jerusalem, and in all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. So we, the end-time community, the spirit-indwelt community, continue this mission of the new exodus. In other words, our mission is to gather in the exiles. We share in the servant mission. Through the ministry of the church and the mission of the church, the kingdom is being restored to Israel. As noted above, God is a missionary God. He sends the Son, and through the Son sends the Spirit, and the Son sends His body and the power of the Spirit. So the question about the restoration of uh, Israel is happening. It's happening in the book of Acts. That's why He continually appeals to this vision of Isaiah, and it continues with us. And it's a Trinitarian mission. Flip over to John 20. Another great commission. John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He sends the Son, and through the Son sends the Spirit, and the Son sends His people in the power of the Spirit. As the Father sent me, I send you. We are sent people. Again, Kostenberger writes, a proper understanding of John's Trinitarian mission theology ought to lead the church to understand its mission in Trinitarian terms. That is, as originating in and initiated by the Father, the one who sent Jesus, as redemptively grounded and divinely mediated by Jesus the Son, the sent one turned sender, and as continued and empowered by the Spirit, the other helping presence, the Spirit of truth. So we're co-workers in the Trinitarian mission. We're missional because God is missional. And of course, Jesus' mission is continued and is effective through his disciples who are drawn in to this mission of the Father and the Son. Christ has sent us. We are sent people. Again, Kostenberger says, For John, there is no separate class of missionaries. All believers are sent. It's in this sense, and there's a sense in which we all ought to consider ourselves missionaries. That's what it means to be missionally minded, to view ourselves as sent, all of us. If you have the Spirit, you're, you're, to be, you're pulled into the Trinitarian mission in, in all sorts of ways. We'll talk a little more about how. So we're the Great Commission people, Matthew 28, Acts 1, John 20. We could go to other places. We're the Great Commission 
people, we're also the inter-advental people. Have you ever thought about why two comings? Why did the Messiah come twice? We don't, we don't really have a specific answer. I mean, we have a few hints. I think part of the reason why is he wanted to form a community, a, a faithful community, to be the instrument of his mission, to be the means by which he fulfills his mission, just like he had in the garden and then the Abrahamic covenant and then the kingdom of priests that Israel was called to be. I think part of it is that. He, he, wanted, he wants the church to be the end-time community, the people of the future, the preview of a new day. The blood-bought new covenant community is the sign of the kingdom. We are the foretaste of the kingdom, and we're the instrument of the kingdom, as Newbigin says. We are the community of the end times. We are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. As Gary mentioned, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. I was struck by um, Gordon Fee, who's, who's, you know, he's a good New Testament scholar. Obviously, we wouldn't follow him on everything, but he's got some good things to say. And I saw recently where he was asked, if he were to return to the pastorate, what would he go about doing first? I thought, man, this would be an interesting question. I mean, it's an interesting answer. And he says, he says, my answer was immediate. No matter how long it might take, I would set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the New Testament church's understanding of itself as an eschatological community. Most people in our churches don't think that way. It's because we don't place ourselves in the mission of God, and we don't place ourselves in the big picture of what God is doing in history, and, and we don't think about the intentionality of which with we exist. We so easily just begin to coast, don't we? And we just do life. And we get into to patterns. And we need to remember who we are, not only in terms of mission, also in terms of being separate. We're the end time community. And this time between the times is for mission. The last days began with the resurrection of Jesus, and the last days are missionary days. The present era, this time between the two coming, is defined by witness. The interadvental period is the period of mission and eschatological gathering. It's for the gathering of Jews and Gentiles into the kingdom. And it's during this era that Christ has commissioned us to be fishers of men. Let's, let's look again at Jeremiah in case you didn't pick that up uh, with Dr. Hamilton. Flip to Jeremiah 16. We all know Jesus called his disciples and said, you know, I'm going to make you fishers of men, fishers for people. Often we forget the, uh, the background of what he's quoting. So in case you were snoozing again yesterday. Uh, let's read it again, Jeremiah 16, 14. Just as we've seen in Acts 1, there's allusion to this, this new exodus. We'll just read 14 to 18. However, take note, the days are coming the Lord's declaration, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites from the land of Egypt, but rather as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites from the land of the north and from all the other lands where he had banished them. In other words, new exodus, right? For I will return them to their land that I gave to their ancestors. I'm about to send for many fishermen, this is the Lord's declaration, and they will fish for them. Then I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and out of the clefts of the rock. So we are to be fishers of men during this time between the time. The Spirit has been poured out. The Son of Man has ascended. He's resurrected. 
and were gathering in the exiles, fishing for people. Through the mission of the church, as I just said in Acts 1, the Lord is restoring his end-time Israel, bringing in the exiles. As with the rest of the New Testament, this new exodus begins in the first coming of the Lord. I think so many things we miss because we, we throw the fulfillment to the second coming when, when there's so much fulfilled in the first coming. The new exodus begins in the first coming, as I mentioned in Mark. And in fact, Mark, Mark's prologue, it quotes Isaiah 40, it quotes Malachi 3.1, goes and speaks of John the Baptist, the spirit descends, he's the Davidic son with whom the father's well pleased. And then Jesus says, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then verse 17 of Mark is the fishers of men verse. So Mark's really intentional with what he's doing there. It's beginning in the first coming. It's consummated in the second coming. And fishing is an apt metaphor. Uh, to think about evangelism today, oftentimes it requires work, doesn't it? Evangelism is hard and it requires patience. All too often we just want to preach the gospel, boom, conversion, and praise the Lord. That happens. But oftentimes, especially today, it seems like relationships are more and more important, and it just takes time. Conversion happens in an instant, but it seems like today it just takes time. People are so illiterate that they need to come in and they need to learn a little bit about the gospel. And oftentimes, people want to watch a bit, kind of see what does it mean to be a Christian. So we fish. We're patient. My dad used to bass fish all the time, and he would go out four hours, come home, not even a bite, and he'd go out the next Saturday morning. I'd, I don't have the patience for that. But we fish for men with work, with patience, with intentionality. Newbigin says that if we miss this aspect of the time between the times, if we miss missionary obedience as the main point of this time between the times, we have a false eschatology. Millennial views aside, we have a false eschatology if we miss missionary obedience. So the church is both the result of mission and the instrument of mission. She's formed by mission and for mission. Kosenberger and O'Brien again say the mission is the church's primary task between Christ's first coming and his return. So three, the body of Christ, another image of the church with missional implications. The church is called the body of Christ. We are the manifestation of the risen Christ upon earth. Obviously means that the body should be similar to the head, right? The church is the hermeneutic of the gospel, to use Newbigin's language. He says this, I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I'm, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles, Christian literature conferences, and even books such as this one. But I'm saying that these are all secondary. They have power to accomplish their purpose only as they're rooted and lead back to the believing community. So if you want to know what Jesus looks like, you ought to be able to look at his people. And of course, obviously, we're always fallen, right? But you, we need to reflect, though. That's, again, this issue of being different. It's an indictment on the church that there's books published like They Like Jesus But Not the Church, and they do so well, these types of books. It's written by Dan Kimball. It's an indictment upon us that that kind of book sells well. Let us strive to make that different. The church is to imitate Christ by loving like he's loved us, 
John 13, I I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Of course, you know, I love this theme of cruciform love. The invisible God is made visible through the Christ-like love of the people of God. Cruciform love is the fundamental virtue of the people of God. Jesus forms a community around himself which functions as the continuation of his presence on earth. We are his body. And you notice Jesus didn't hang out with the good old boys. We we need to explode the holy huddle. Now you do this with discernment, but Jesus was a friend of sinners. He had a bad reputation among certain people because he hung with, you know, you know who he hung with, the worst of the worst, right? I wonder, do we have those types of friends? I mean, I'm challenged here, and you've obviously got to have a lot of care and a lot of discernment uh, because the intention needs to be to win people to Christ, but I'm very challenged by Jesus' example. Obviously, holy, yet rub shoulders with some of the the sinners. So that's that's a challenge to us to to seek to have friends who are sinners. I've got a few of them. I praise the Lord. I was converted, uh, you know, in college, so I had a lot of unbelieving friends, and I've been able to hang on to a lot of them and try to... uh, try to cultivate relationships, and it just it makes it interesting. When I was a pastor in Houston, I reconnected with one of my friends from college, and he's a, uh, a very blasphemous, six-foot-eight, 300-pound rapper. And uh, I, would, I would hang out with him on purpose. I would invite him to things, and a uh, few eyebrows curled, but trying to model Jesus and trying to win the brother to Christ. And I know that when he, when he needs help and when things go bad for him, I know he's going to call me. He has before. So let's strive to be like Jesus as his body, not necessarily hanging out with all the holy huddle all the time and inviting them in to watch how we do life. We're always distinct, never blending in, but say a lot more, I'm meddling. Number four, priests. The basic New Testament truth of the priesthood of every believer was, resco- was discovered, rediscovered at the Reformation, but in too many churches, this is just an abstract truth, not functionally working itself out in the congregation. In practical ways. Too many Christians still think of the pastor slash priest. You know, and again, in my circles, we have the altar call. And what does the altar call communicate? Not even thinking about soteriology, but what does it communicate? That if you want to do business with God, you better come to this man. You want to pray? You better come to this man. You want to deal with this? You better come to this man, the, the, the pastor priest. I'm thankful for lots of recent literature, much of it missionally focused that teaches otherwise. Uh, A good book I recommend just on ministry life is Total Church by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, and they write this. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. I think many churches aren't thriving because they function as if there were a priesthood of one rather than the priesthood of all. Not, they don't even think of themselves in that way, much less function in that way. We need to take an ax to the clergy-laity distinction, not getting rid of leaders. I believe in plural eldership leading. But we need to, to ax the clergy-laity distinction. These leaders are brothers. We need to activate our ordinary people because that's exactly what we are, but we also need to activate them in ordinary ways. There's, most people think of ministry as what happens on the stage. They think they can't do ministry because they can't preach a sermon or teach a Sunday school lesson or sing a solo. So in our teaching, we've got to broaden their concept of ministry. 
I don't think missional intentionality is even on the radar most of our people. So it's the job of teachers and preachers to do, to do that. We just think of over there. That's for them. That's for you. Wilbert Schink writes that there's no biblical or theological basis for the territorial distinction between mission and evangelism. To accede to this dichotomy is to invite the church to settle in and become at home. This false distinction has been harmful to our doctrine of the church. We've got to push all to think of mission. Yes, I'm not, I'm not downgrading at all missions and foreign missions, not at all. But we've got to help people to think of mission not merely as over there. We've got to help them think of missionaries wherever they are, wherever God has sovereignly placed them, right? We believe in sovereignty. We believe in Acts 17 that our people are where they are because God has placed them there and they are to be his ambassador. They are to be his priests. Most people just think of foreign missionaries and half the time they'll just feel guilty for maybe not praying enough for that fridge, that card on the fridge, or perhaps not, not sending enough money and they don't think of their own life. Now, don't get me wrong. We, need, we all in here have plenty of resources, uh, and we need to be giving more. So don't, don't hear me downgrade that. In fact, let me just put a plug in here for To Every Tribe. You've heard from To Every Tribe. Most of you hear from To Every Tribe Ministries every year. Let me just say this. If this group of all people is not sending the resources their way, who will? This is a missions agency that, that majors on obedience to Christ, New Covenant Theology, Reformed theology and Baptist ecclesiology. If, if they're not getting most of the resources from this group, that needs to change. We ought to be the ones supporting them the most. So I'm not at all down, downplaying foreign missions, I'm, but I'm wanting to call for local missions. So part of our task is to broaden their understanding of ministry, which is another way of saying broaden their understanding of priesthood. Redeeming the ordinary things. What do priests do? They work in service to God in behalf of the people. Priests mediate the presence of God to the world. So we need to help teach our people a robust theology, theology of vocation, plumbing, and priesthood. This is going to take work. It's going to take thoughtful theology to help our people function the way God intends them to function. What does it mean to plumb in a Christian way? Flip to 1 Peter 2. We looked at a little bit yesterday. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Of course, Peter's drawing from three Old Testament passages here. Clearly, Exodus 19, remember, was we read it. It was the vocation of Israel, what they were to be. Of course, they were a failure. He's also appealing to, surprise, surprise, Isaiah's new Exodus vision, Isaiah 43, 19 to 21. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The animals of the field will honor me, jackals and ostriches, because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. And then also Hosea 2, which is very interesting because it's saying that basically unfaithful Israel is no longer my people, but in the future they will be my people. And Paul in Romans 9, and here Peter applies it to Gentiles. So it's the sense of 
Israel's no longer my people, but he's, they're going to again be my people in the future. Why not include other Gentiles in that my people? As priests, we're to be holy. We're to offer sacrifices to represent God to the world. The church stands at the crossroads between God and the world. We're priests called to proclaim. The Holman Christian says the praises. Some say mighty acts. We proclaim his mighty acts. I think there's both an allusion here, both to doing it within the congregation, but also without. And there's this whole idea that popular in the emerging church of this distinction between belonging before believing. And I believe, I believe membership is healthy and, and can be a means for fostering the one another's and church discipline and, and elder accountability and that sort of thing. But I also believe that we ought to, in our churches, let unbelievers come in and watch a lot of things. You know, some churches will close their small group to have only believers. If you're not a believer and a member, you can't come to my small group. I don't understand that. Why not invite an unbeliever to say, hey, come here? Well, they might have, I remember I was trying to do this in a certain place. And the lady was like, well, I don't, want, I don't want someone to hear me if I confess my sin, some random stranger. And I'm, and I'm thinking, wait, I just I lovingly pressed back. Now, wait a minute. You don't want an unbeliever to come in and hear you, a broken human being, just like that person, co- confess your sin, receive counsel from the word of God, from the people of God, confess it to the Lord in prayer, and, and be reassured of the gospel of grace. And she's like, oh, now that you put it that way, that's exactly what we want. So we don't, well, I, I, I'm nervous about some of the talk about belonging before believing, but I think, just as in Corinth, we need to have structures in place where unbelievers can come in and they can see what's going on, they can hear what we're doing, and just to slowly acquaint them with the things of God. Being patient, being fishers. Number five, a temple. The church as the temple of God has vast missional implications. As mentioned, Adam and Eve were commissioned Subdue and rule, extending the boundaries of the garden temple into the whole world was Eden-like. Then we have Pentecost. And Pentecost, Acts 2, is the inauguration of the church as the temple. The Spirit's descent is God's presence returning to the temple, which is now defined around his people. Full Lord, biblical theology of the temple. We would start with the garden, move to the tabernacle, temple, Jesus, church, corporately and individually, and ultimately New Jerusalem. Here we're focusing on the people, the people of God. We are the end-time temple. Look at Acts 2, Pentecost again. Confirmation for this comes in Acts 2. Of course, Peter's sermon. Look at Acts 2, 17. Again, let me just give another plug uh, for the Holman Christian because I know you can't see this. But we have a quote here of of Joel 2, right? And it's in bold, and it will be, look at your Bibles, and it will be, And then it's not in bold, in the last days, says God, that, and then bold, back to Joel, I will pour out my spirit. So this is really helpful just for someone reading to think, huh, there's a quote that's bold, and there's a section that's not bold, and then it goes back to being bold. What's going on here? Well, when you go and you look back at Joel, what's going on here is Peter's changing Joel. Joel said, and afterwards. And Peter says, it will be in the last days, says God. I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy. You're familiar with the promise in Joel 2 that's inaugurated in Acts 2. Well, what about this phrase that Peter adds, in the last days? Well, you you think, okay, it doesn't seem to be in Joel. Where else could it be? Well, it's helpful here to know the languages because there's four words here, entice, eschatize, hemorrhize, in the last days, four words, and the four words in the phrase occurs in the rest of the Greek New Testament and the Greek Old Testament one time. I think 
that's called a quotation. I don't think that's by accident. Guess where it's at? It's Isaiah chapter 2 and the prophecy of the new temple. Isaiah 2, 2, and 3 says, well, let's read it. Let's go to Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, in the last days, and that's, that's where it is. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, all nations, and get this, pontata ethne. Hmm. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths, for instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord. So the end-time temple that the nations are streaming to is the church on mission in the new covenant. The mountain of the Lord is being raised above the hills, and as we witness, God adds to his people, and the presence of God expands on earth. The temple grows. Therefore, the church is the temple, but the church is called to the task of temple building. As Christopher Wright notes, mission then may be compared to the building of the indwelling place of God and inviting the nations to come on home. Of course, we know it's ultimately God who builds this temple, but God always uses means. Ephesians 1, the whole building being built together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. And 1 Peter 2, right before the verses we read, says that we're being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So we are the temple, and we are the priest who offer sacrifices in the temple, and we're the ones who call to build the temple. So the sovereignty of God is fuel for a missional ecclesiology. As many have said, we work like Arminians and sleep like Calvinists. Number six, we are apostolic. I won't spend much time here, but obviously we're apostolic in that we're built upon the apostolic documents, but the word apostle means sent one. So we're also apostolic in that we are sent. We're doubly apostolic. Craig Van Gelder in his book, The Essence of the Church, says the basic image of the church as apostolic conveys that the church is sent into the world authoritatively by God to participate fully in his redemptive work. As the Father sent me, I send you, Jesus said, or apostolic. And finally, number seven, we are the continuing fulfillment of the book of Acts. You ever notice how the book of Acts seems to have an unfinished ending? Which propels the churches in their own mission. There at the end, Paul, he's openly and actively preaching the gospel in Rome, and he's indicating that the gospel of the kingdom is set to move on from the center of the empire to all its parts. The mission has begun in Christ and his apostles. You remember what Paul, Luke tells Theophilus in the beginning. He says, Jesus began the mission. It's all about the, 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 the book of Acts is about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the book of Acts about? The, what church, the church does, right? But, but Luke is God-centered, Christ-centered. It's what Jesus began to do in the book of Acts through his, through his covenant community. Jesus began the mission and told the early church that they had been made a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So as we've seen, the servant's mission of ushering in the kingdom of God, the new exodus is still being accomplished. So the story of Acts continues, and it will continue until the resurrection. So, you know, you can think what you want about the Acts 29 movement, movement of church planners. Think what you want about their movement. They have an awesome name. The book of Acts ends in chapter 28. They call themselves the Acts 29 movement. That is superb. 
So in conclusion, let me give you uh, six marks of a missional church from Tim Keller. He says a church, a church on mission should have these six things. It should confront society's idols. Think about, man, they're all over, right? Money, power, sex. Number two, the church must contextualize skillfully and communicate in the vernacular. Now, contextualization can be a dirty word in some circles, but hear this, every single congregation has contextualized. All, all music at one point was contemporary music. So we've got to, we've got to understand our, our, where we're at, where we're landed, and we need to seek to contextualize. Paul was the master of this. You know, our, one of our favorite passages in New Covenant theology is 1 Corinthians 9. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not under law. Um, I'm not without law. I'm under the law of Christ. We use that, I think legitimately so, to get a theology of the law. But what's that passage about, the broader context? 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, Paul says, I've become all things to all people that I might win some. To the weak, to the weak, strong, strong. Jews, Jews, Gentiles, Gentiles. So that's actually a contextualization passage. Now, you do this with care, but it has to be done. You've got to think about your context and, and communicate in the vernacular. So we're not seeker-sensible, obviously, but we are seeker-sensitive, but we are seeker-sensible. We need to speak language, and particularly in our preaching, that people can understand. We don't want to just have a bunch of highfalutin jargon. Number three, the church must equip people in mission in every area of their lives. This is where pastors have to do work, because most pastors, we know one thing and we know it well, it's ministry. So a lot of sermons just end up saying, you need to be like me, or you need to be a missionary. Most pastors don't work hard enough at a theology of vocation to help people where they are in their current jobs. Most of them are going to stay there. Most of you will stay where you are. You may not be called anywhere. So what does it mean for you to be a priesthood in your current vocation? We need to work well at equipping people in that. The church, number four, the church must be a counterculture for the common good. We spoke about that. Number five, the church must itself be contextualized and should expect non-believers, inquirers, and seekers to be involved in most aspects of the church's life and ministry. Again, that may mean different things to, to different people in terms of your own congregation and convictions. Just make sure that it's happening. I mean, I think it's healthy when unbelievers show up at church. Number six, the church must practice unity. So we see that God is the missional God who's working out his purposes from creation to new creation, and he's formed his people to be the means he uses to accomplish his mission. So every Christian needs to view himself or herself as sent by the triune God to their particular context. I submit that this way of thinking is largely absent today, and if recovered, will help people live not only more fulfilling lives, because they won't be focused on their self, that's the number one problem of depression is focusing on the self rather than the other to help our people live more fulfilling lives in service of their own body and the larger community and will certainly expand the kingdom of God and thus bring him glory. So that's my calling for a missional ecclesiastes. Um, I know I could buy the CD, but... There's two quotes that you did, and I was too slow to get them down. Instead of going to church, you do what? Say it slowly when I get back there. Oh, God. Two, if there is one Lord that summons to missions, if there is one Lord, and then that whole quote. And then three, 
in Jeremiah 16, the fishers of men. Isn't that referring to going and getting the bad guys and judgment? Okay. In Jeremiah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think I said something about going to, uh, to meet with the eschatological new covenant community that meets at Riverside Street at 1045 a.m. On Sunday. Oh, you need to write it down? New, the, I'm joking, obviously. I don't tell my three-year-old that. <laughs> he couldn't say half of that. But uh, I, I'm try, I really am trying to speak correctly about uh, church. We'll say different things. We'll say I'm going to gathering or we're going to Riverside Baptist Church, going to meet with, you know, whatever. Uh, but we try not to say we're going to church. But, yeah, I'm, I was just joking about being, uh, you know, overly theological. My poor three-year-old has, uh, <laughs> has a long road ahead of him. Um, and John Dixon in his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, speaks of the mission equation. And it's something, he words it in different ways throughout the book. But it's, if there is one Lord to, to whom all people belong and owe their allegiance, then the people of that Lord must promote this reality everywhere. And that's just based upon the logic of the Great Commission. I have been given all authority as the Danielic son of man who's ascended to the ancient of the days. Therefore, go. Because I have been given all authority. And then uh, Jeremiah 16. Yeah, the, 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 the gathering's interesting, isn't it? Because you have both. I mean, this is where Dr. Hamilton's book is so helpful. God's mission is God's glory in salvation through judgment. Um, so there's always both, right? And that's the, that's the initial message. Think about John the Baptist's mission. The axe is laid at the root. It's, judgment's coming. The day of the Lord's coming. So, so I think it's always both. And in a sense, isn't that what we do? I mean, part of our mission is announcement of judgment uh, if, if one doesn't repent, just like it was with John's. Gary George, Massachusetts. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Luke 24, 47. Jesus says that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in my name among all nations. Now, in the synoptic, the Matthew account... Go into all the world, uh, go ye therefore and teach all nations, making disciples, okay? Do we make converts by discipling them, or do we make disciples by converting them? Seems like Mark and Luke are suggesting gospel preaching, whereas Jesus in Matthew 28, which we call the Great Commission, is he telling us to make disciples before their conversion, or is it an assumption that in the discipling process, the conversion is occurring simultaneously. Does that make sense, the question? Do you understand that? Yeah, what I would say, and you can push back here, I would say that, yeah, conversion is assumed before the, the, the making of disciples. In Matthew 28. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wouldn't know how to understand just making disciples out of non-believers. Because it's a common thing done by... By cults and fringe groups, yeah. they have to disciple them. They have to catechize them, have these Bible studies, and they got to teach them their doctrines, and then then they incorporate them into their body of people. Whereas, you know, we believe that there's power in the gospel. Mm -hmm. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. And it seems like Mark and Luke are saying that, but I'm assuming that Jesus means the same thing, but he's wording it differently in Matthew 28. Yeah, that's what I think. Okay, so. Robin Duhamel, Worcester, Massachusetts. I really appreciated these sessions. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I had to read two books, 
McLaren's new kind of Christianity, a little like jazz. So of course I uh, got uh, introduced to the emerging movement and so forth. And there's a good article I think by Tim Keller, The Five Streams of the Emerging. And in this area, they're right on the money. And, and, and I, I agree with that 100%. There's a lot of things said to be done uh, good. But there's some very serious problems with them also. And I just was kind of a backup. Uh, I didn't know if Gary was going to actually uh, make that statement. But what I was thinking here, and it's so true, you have these converts, you know, this notch, like I led 50 to the Lord, you know, and they got saved. They asked Jesus in our heart to sign the card, whatever it might be, and that was it. You leave them there. But I mean, you see in Acts after Peter preached, okay, and they received the word, and they were baptized, and 3,000 were added, and then they continued in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread. So I see the conversion, there's the discipleship right after. And I think that's so important because what's happening with the emergence, and as you know, this emphasis so much on the imitation of Christ and life of Christ. And one of the problems is no absolute. If the word of God is not our absolute authority. Then it's on the shelf with the other holy books, the Quran and whatever. And along with open theism and so forth, some of the problems that arise from this is there's discipleship, but no conversion. And that's a danger. And so I just, you know, it's a balance. It's something that this is part of the, you know, you got the liberal churches, Protestant, you know, the social gospel. And this is where they really did feeding the poor and all these social concerns. And evangelical Christianity, for a second, was just souls, souls, souls. They go hand in hand. They're both. Uh, but they just want to make those comments. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'll just follow up with, he mentioned, uh, he said emergent, which I, he may, you may have been intentional, may not, Rob. But one of my, <clears throat> do what? Emergent. Oh, emergent, okay, gotcha. Uh, that some of this can get nuanced and it's, it just can become too complicated to try to be uh, loving. One of my big burdens that I find often in the reformed world is uh, people lumping people together and people criticizing views and had never read people. You know, whether this is, I mean, I don't want to get specific, but there's oftentimes people criticizing those that don't fit in our camp without even having engaged them, uh, which is not loving. It's not a loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is if you're going to critique them, engage them, and actually read what they've written, uh, or just don't critique them at all. Uh, but there are those with it, the emerging movement is very broad. It has the range from Dan Kimball to Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll's a four-point Calvinist, believes in inerrancy, complementarian. Uh, Tim Keller would be, you know, fit in the emerging movement, and he's five-point Calvinist, Presbyterian. Uh, now, emergent, though, is typically the more, you know, left-wing, Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, kind of, that, uh, that are very, very dangerous and not worth reading, but uh, I think it's helpful to to make those distinctions and not just lump them all together and uh, just try to be loving in our critiques and actually read books before you critique them, please. <laughs> so what we would want to do to us, golden rule, right? Good 
Ohio, thanks so much for your talk. Just uh, something you said at the beginning about some churches maybe having too much of a focus on the Great Commission. I don't know if maybe you could expand on that a little further. Sure, yeah. Well, and, and you got to keep in mind what I mean by uh, it's their understanding of the Great Commission. And so uh, I just, I'll speak frankly because it's true. Generally, especially in Texas, let me just speak for Texas, generally in the Southern Baptist world, uh, it's big on Great Commission making disciples, but oftentimes what they mean is winning souls by questionable means, that sort of thing. So when I say overemphasize the Great Commission, I'm thinking of most of the services, I'm sure there's sermons, but the primary thing is what's going to happen down here after the service. Uh, and some of those churches need to focus on, focus on the one another's a lot more than they do body life, you know, all churches do. Um, or doctrine, you know, there's a lot of shallow doctrine in that world, so they need to focus more on doctrine, a little less on the numbers. So when I said that, I meant numbers-driven, not so much true Great Commission-driven. Thanks for that. I need to clarify that question. David Bennett, Lookout, West Virginia. Uh, One of the things, talking about the emergent church and the the whole cultural thing of uh, members and believers and that kind of thing, uh, one of the distinctions that we read about in Acts is the great fear came upon all the church and upon many as, as many as heard these things. And verse 13 says, And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. Would you speak? This is one of the issues that I deal with a lot in being a pastor. Um, I can read through our church history and see where you were disciplined out of the church if you didn't pay the tithe, you know, and that kind of thing. Now we've swung the other way where there's very little church discipline of any sort because of this relational can you speak to the practicality of, and I'm sure you've, you've pastored, so how does where the rubber meets the road, uh, loving reconciliation, discipline type thing work itself out in the ministry of a local church, a local body? Yeah, well, let me say I've got two years, of pa- I mean, officially two years of pastoral experience. It really bugs me when you have these guys with zero experience waxing eloquent. I've got a lot of theory that needs to be worked out. But when I'm, that's a good question because it allows me to talk a little bit about what I mean by discipleship. Oftentimes, when we think of discipleship, we think about programs, formal mentorship, and that sort of thing. And, and obviously, there is intentionality. That's just a key word in this whole discussion, being intentional. So when I go and I'm going to meet with anybody, I've got plans. I've got intentions. I don't care what I'm doing. I've got intentions, and that intention is push them closer to Christ in some way. Um, so I'm helping them obey Jesus' teaching, right? Um, but it's just friendship. Friendship is lost in the church. So much of it is just informal body life. And if our churches did more together than just sitting here looking at the stage for an hour and actually got together, so much of the last step of discipline would be avoided because you've got friends that are walking with you, know your struggles that you're confessing to, that can be stopped way before it gets to that final step. Now, man, that, as you know, that's hard to get there. But, but as pastors I think, and as members, this is what we give our life to, is to fostering that new covenant, end-time community life that is not ashamed of their sin because we believe the gospel. So we work through it, and we're brothers and sisters and helping each other 
uh, get back on track rather than me fighting with my wife and sleeping on the couch for two months and then finally going to the elders and saying it's done. Well, that just should never happen because the day I slept on the couch, I should call my brother at the church and say, brother, I've got problems and I need prayer. I need, some, I need an external word here. Um, so that, that's, that's the goal. That's the ideal. You know, it's always messier than that, but so much of it, I think, can be um, caught early. And still there can be straight-up rebellion, and you can end up having to go to that final process of discipline. I agree it needs to be, uh, it needs to be brought back, but I also think, I mean, this church has history of, of uh, being, being brought back in a, in a forceful way. You've got to be careful how you bring it back, especially that last step. The goal, I think, is to get to the, the formative discipline of uh, doing one another's together. Uh, but you've got you to have it. got to have church discipline to keep the church pure. But the difference in some of this is a lot of this I'm talking about outsiders, unbelievers. It's different than uh, the covenant community. This is why one of the reasons I think membership is helpful to help know who is in, who's out here. Just two cents. Ask me in 10 years. Keith Dosser with Grace Fellowship in State College, Pennsylvania, and with uh, Grace Death Missions. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this, but in, in, uh, in my own congregation, there has been a serious hesitation, a, a reticence to uh, embrace formal church membership. Um, I don't know what provokes, I don't know everything that provokes that kind of thinking, but maybe you can address that. Yeah, we had a... When I came on in Houston, there there was already membership in place, and, and one of the ladies we had a conversation with, she just really didn't want to, and the whole thing, I'm just so scared of commitment. <laughs> That's what she told us was a reason for being hesitant. Um, and I, I think membership is implicit in the Bible, but I think it, and this is what I think needs to be taught really clearly when we're talking about membership. In fact, I, try, I like to call it partnership. Membership can imply passive, you know, country club membership. Partnership means here, you're with us here. Uh, it's an active, active word partnership. I think that comes from, maybe Trellis and the Vine mentions that. or uh, Yeah, I think it's Trellis and the Vine. Um, but but in emphasizing what the purpose of a formal membership is, is what I, because it's just a means, right? It's, at least in my mind, it's just a means. And then like, I mean, that's all. It's just a means to help them. And if you have a covenant, it can be helpful. And covenant is just a summary of scripture. And I know some of us are very anti-document. Uh, but a covenant that basically just summarizes the one another's of the Bible. I was in a church in Louisville where a Third Avenue Baptist, and there was a covenant, and every time they had the Lord's meal, or, yeah, Lord's meal, at Lord's supper, um, they would read the covenant together. So the, the members of the people that had joined would stand together, and they would read it, and it was just a reaffirmation of, basically, I'm here for you, I'm praying for you, we're keeping each other accountable kind of thing. So I think helpful, it's helpful to just continue to teach why we're asking you to consider this class, make sure you're a believer, um, and uh, what we expect of you, which is just what the New Testament. So it's helping them, it's enabling our members, our people, to better function and, and fulfill the one another's, one another's of the New Testament. So it's great, I think, to have it in directory and have names and pray through it regularly and encourage that and uh, it just gives some people some uh, something to grab onto. And then, of course, as pastors, when it comes to discipline, that sort of thing uh, can also be helpful. But. Yeah, yeah. But 
I'm quite, I would always question the person who really would, so you come in, and we believe in autonomous local churches, so you have a church that has membership, and a person's really pushing against joining that church, I'm just wondering why. That's a rebellious spirit that makes me nervous, uh, and I would just want to meet with them and pick their brain, what's going on here. And Me again. <laughs> um, no, just to clarify, right, emerge in globally, I'm not talking about, I'm, I was talking about the emerge in. Right, right, right. In, in that respect, and, and the reason why is bringing that up, and I have read their books, I know where they're going and so forth, and that's the problem I have because they're saying you can find Jesus in Islam, you can find Jesus in Hindu, in you know, Hinduism, and so forth. So the problem with that, and what I'm saying about the danger is that that movement is. Uh, you know, they become very, I mean, they house churches, you know, get out of the buildings and, you know, you're just cloaked in this uh, 50 version of white, you know, so it's, they, there's a lot of good things. That's why that article, Five Streams, and, and one of the things is the fact that the mission, you know, mm -hmm. going out. Uh, my background, I'm from a Plymouth Brethren background, if you know anything about them, they're pretty evangelistic. So. Our local churches, I mean, were always open air preaching and going out and so forth. So this was never really a problem. We were up with that. But once again, the problem, to restate it, is the danger of discipling without the conversion. Mm -hmm. And I really see them, not one or the other, you know, it's step one and two. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want someone imitating Jesus. and but I'm finding it in Islam, but my life is so, and there's that discipleship aspect, but without the conversion. And once again, the danger is getting away from the word of God and preaching the gospel and expounding the gospel and so forth like that. I'm not talking about insider movements or anything like that, you know, but that's, that's just to clarify. Yeah, no, I knew, I knew you meant that, because no. that, you mentioned McLaren's name, so I knew, I knew what you were saying, and uh, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, McLaren, yeah, left wing, often wolf land. 